the prices of the bill, but would push up the interest rate. Well, bonds and bills, huh? First and foremost, but they would never do the same. They, they cannot just sell bonds. They would first and foremost sell bills to replenish. So you, you have been conned. Why? Because you cannot force up interest rates anymore. Their plan has succeeded. It was an evil, Knievel plan. They succeeded. So, giving you little bills with fancy notes. I mean, the Queen was on there. Wow. Um, Are you impressed? The, uh, only since the 50s. Only since the 50s. And before, were you impressed with the, with the printings before and the signatures? <laughs> right. This is, um, well, I can get carried away with that. But um, let's stick to the, um, the model here. What determines the floor has been taken away and what determines the ceiling has also been taken away because many people think that now the central bank is in control. Who is in control? Well, speculators are in control. It's the ceiling rate of interest in the 19... When was it? 1970s? 1971. Was it Nixon. Nixon defaulted on the gold windows of, of the US dollars, right? Gold was, the dollar was taking off the gold standard altogether, externally, because internally they did it in 1930. Immediately, interest rates started to rise. Did you think for a moment that it was the Fed who put up interest rates? It wasn't. It wasn't. Speculators have jumped on that position because they could see that banks were overextended and their little capital wasn't was insufficient, so they speculated against banks by dumping their bonds. If you dump a bond, you drop the price of the bond, what is happening? You're pushing up the interest rate. 1971 up to 1980, in a short period of a couple, like a, less than a decade, interest rates shot up sky high. Now you could say, well, there's far more to go after 18 or 15 percent, but I mean, that, that was the limit. 18 percent, nobody can bear. I mean, can you imagine 18 percent plus premium on your credit cards, on your mortgages? It will kill you. So who's in charge? The Fed? Marginal speculation is in charge. And at one stage, it turned around. Volcker is credited with turning around the situation. Really? Did he? When interest rates were shooting up, what were people doing in the, in the decade? Well, there's people younger than older, but I'm addressing myself to the older generation here. What did people do between 1970 and 1980? They started hoarding anything. 
anything. Houses, inventory, anything that you could, bigger ships, so you could stockpile bigger ships, they date from the 70s. Big mastodon tankers to hoard oil, another very highly marketable good. Hoarding would give you the opportunity to make a profit. Because if you took it now, and you bought it all now, in three weeks time when you sell it, it would have gone up in price. It's called inflation. So this is an inflationary period. All of a sudden, there's a massive flow of funds out of the bond market and into commodities. Any commodity that you could hold. And people did. Pushing up prices of commodities, of, of course. How does that work in coming down, you would think? What's now determining the flow rate? Well, same model, same time preference. Only the time preference is a little bit poisoned here. Under a gold standard, you would have worldwide, imagine that for coordination, worldwide, more or less, one interest rate. Why? Is that worldwide and why is there only one? Well, you have market makers, these two, who could who have vast resources and they could they buy at the low and sell at the high, you know. And in between them they compress of course the spread. But that's what they do and they do that not only here. They have to live on a smaller spread. So instead of doing it locally they go worldwide. Worldwide you have one more or less one interest rate. Compressed. Under Goldstone. What's happening now? Well, gold is gone, no more room for that. We have better things, we have the dollar in your pocket. And we still have marginal time preference. However, there's not just one time marginal time preference, we have now a multitude of time preferences. And to cut a long story short, it ends up in a sick way with an inverted yield curve. Because people have to do arbitrage between all sorts of risks and you have added risk of exchange, uh, foreign exchange and what, uh, I forgot the second one? Maturity. Well, maturities with, with added, um, yeah, but it's the maturities <coughs> you, you had to choose here and, and of course the maturities is what would, that would you would use to discriminate in, in, in your risk why are interest rates lower and lower and lower still do you think it's the Fed who does that? 
Well, the Fed has a role to play, but I suggest to you the Fed is just following and not leading. Because what is happening is, is this. They have created these dollars in your pockets. Debt has now, debt is now in this, what's the, what's the word? Um, you cannot dis, um, extinguish debt anymore because you've issued debt. How will you extinguish debt with more debt? That's why I've asked you, why do you give the government on the issue, issuer of your note credit? That dollar will extinguish debt with the shop that you buy a coffee from, legally. But in the end, this is a system, in the end, the issuer is kicking the garbage upstairs. He's not extinguishing debt because he's issuing more debt on the backs of my children and your children's future labor. They have to work productively to pay down debt this generation has created. You cannot extinguish debt with more debt. It has to be paid down in gold. And if you do that, the power of certain, of, um, well, the seventh participant in here is, uh, is not, is obvious, is, 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 is not there, but it's the government and, and it's, it's authority in general. Um, and they're, they're a parasitic element in this, in as far as they are needed, they are overextended. Now, what happens when interest rates are dropping? The Fed is just following, it's not leading. Yes? So when you refer to interest rates all the time, you tell me which part of the yield curve? You're talking about, say, 10-year rates. Is that what you're referring to? Because obviously the Fed is in control of the Fed effective. Or to that, well, not the Fed effective, but that target. So I'm just... Want to be absolutely clear, what part of the yield are you talking about? The shorthand. So, uh, three-year rate? You're not talking about short-term rates, you're talking about... Me? Well, it's not, it's not a very short-end either, but the long-end, I'm not talking about long-end either. No? Yeah. In the middle. Take an average. Take not not very short. I think probably 10-year rate is what you think. 10-year would be a good example, yes. That would be good, yes. That's, that's a typical example. It's not a 30-year rate either. Well, it could, well, it could do. The instrument I'm talking about is irredeemable debt, fiat credit. And this is now where difficulty comes in. I've, I'm going to use a, a simple example to show a very complicated situation, a complex situation. Imagine you are an entrepreneur, a farmer, and you are now 
at the end of the year, 30, 31st of December, end of the year, you've done well and your compound harvester, your tractor, your equipment is in summer need of replacement. So you go to the uh, Massey Ferguson, what's, what's the tractor called, Massey Ferguson? Or is it now Japanese sometime? I don't know, I don't know Kubota, whatever. Um, you go to the dealership and you see this new tractor there and hmm, you want that tractor. What's the sticker price of the tractor? Going back again to our model, the entrepreneur, he's making an arbitrage between cash flows. He's got weighted average cost of capital, the whack. That's what he needs to pay for this tractor. Now the tractor has a limited amount of lifetime, n periods of life. This tractor will drop dead at the end of his lifetime. Not a single drop of oil will, re will revive it, you know. That's what we assume. With a limited amount of land, because you're a farmer, with your tractor being productive and a given amount of risk in the weather and productivity of the land, you know that it will cost you this much and it will gain you that much. It's still positive, fine, you'll do it. Your weighted average cost of capital is the interest rate for all intents and purposes. You go to the dealership and either you, you finance it out of your pocket, but that doesn't mean that you don't want to return on your money out of your pocket, or you get a lease, or you get it financed, whatever, but you still have <laughs> you still have this, whether you, whether you borrow money or not, if it's, if it's in your own, uh, coming out of your own um, cash hoards, it still demands a return. Obviously, you're not going to invest your own money at zero for the next 10 years. True? Huh? You want, you want something. Fine, you ordered that tractor. You go to bed, it's the 31st, and on the second, on the morning after, the government has decided in the form of the Fed, Mr. Benenke has given everybody a Christmas, no, not a Christmas, a year-end um, break, and he has dropped interest rates. Now, let's assume you're paying four here to the dealership and the present that you received from the Fed is a blank 2%. Everybody now pays 2%. What is your reaction? Damn. Damn. To make matters worse, at 9 o'clock when you were having your coffee, at 10 o'clock your neighbor comes and rings your doorbell, and he's also a farmer, and he says, wonderful news! I bought myself a tractor! <coughs> and you think, damn! Of course, he's capitalized at a lower rate. His back is low because he got 2%, and you're paying 4 Now. This is not good news then. And I have to tell you this little story. Um, do we have time? Yes, I'll make time. 
this, this is uh, an anecdote from an MBA class. MBAs are smart people. What was their solution? I'll give it to them. It's ingenious. They would say, fine, in buying this tractor, in buying any plant and equipment, I will employ a good lawyer who would put in a clause to the effect that there is a put option, yes, put option on the head of the supplier, so he will take back his equipment in case of an interest rate drop. If he signs on the dotted line, your risk of an interest rate drop has been shifted. Shifted, it's not gone away. The poor dealership now takes the risk. So the Fed has blown holes, not in your balance sheet, but in the balance sheet of the dealership, thanks to the crafty put clause. Okay, the MBAs are smarted, probably 99% of the rest of the population, but that doesn't take away their damage. The damage was done by a sudden drop in interest rates. Are there any accountants here? Financial analysts? I'm sure there are. You know how to read account balance sheets. You don't have to put up and admit to it. <laughs> Where are you taking in your balance sheet? Where, where, where's it showing up? Because modern accounting has something to do with interest rates. When interest rates go up, we can just as well admit that if we have assets and liabilities, thanks to seesaw, assets are cash flow producing engines. That's what they are. So you have to use a discounted cash flow model. As soon as you use a discounted cash flow model, you are faced with this. If interest rates drop, the price of an asset rises. I don't have to tell you that the price of property has risen. It's called an asset bubble, you can read all over the internet. Interest rates dropping has the effect of pushing up the price of an asset. Have you become rich? I doubt it. For this being a balance sheet, your liabilities have gone up, otherwise it wouldn't be a balance sheet. Can you do that according to accounting law? Explain to your tax receiver and explain in your balance sheet that, well, you know, due to the recent interest rate structure, our liabilities have gone up. Even if nothing happened, you just signed bonds, that's it, and they're still running. Well, the present value of your bonds, if you want to buy them back, you have to put up the price. The, the buyback price has risen. 
modern accounting law prevents you from doing that because it assumes that your business is continuous and it, you are not allowed to assume that you have to buy back your liabilities now. That's why you cannot do that. You have to take them at nominal amounts and here as well. Actually, you don't have to because they, they allow you <laughs> somehow to revalue your assets. That's that's because well, never mind. Where are you to, in, in reality under natural orders, I mean this has happened. Even even if you are prevented by positive legal positivism not to. There is also something like a profit and loss. This is the second. Where are you taking your loss? Your losses are here, reflected in the PL sheet. And this is crafty. It really is, because the hole that was blown by the put option can be shifted, but there's still a hole somewhere in someone's balance sheet. Put option will cause a loss. And if you don't have a put option, it will cause a loss with you. Because your neighbor is now able to produce the same amount of farm produce at a lower cost. Your cost is whatever it was when you put your signature on, and he's got better terms. Damn. Who's in control of prices? Prices of output? I said yesterday. It's not the producer. The producer is not in, in control of prices. It is the consumer. Consumer is in control. So this man, your neighbor, being able to produce at a lower cost, together with all the rest of the world being able to produce at a lower cost, do you think they will keep prices in check? Of course not. There's 10,000 more farms who are able to jump on this opportunity and they will produce. And there are the margins, I mean, this is asymmetric completely. It's out of the um, topics that we are discussing, but prices are decided not by you, but by the market. In, in that case, the consumer. Your farm produce, you are obviously taking a loss because your weighted average cost of capital is higher than your neighbor. You're taking a loss here. You know what, why it's crafty? Central bank planners can say, well, look at you, you're running losses. They blame you. And they can. It's you. You are not smart enough to make a profit. In the meantime, they have they are the engine of this. How are we doing for time? Another five, ten minutes. Five, okay. Why are interest rates dropping? Well, given that interest rates dropping and they destruct, they they, they destroy capital. 
They destroy you as an, and the next farmer and the next farmer. And not only the farmers, it's just for everyone. They will destroy capital. Falling interest rates, low interest rates are fine, right? But low and falling destroy capital this way. Disingenuous as it is. You get blamed for it. Right. Interest rates, marginalizing. This is another way of, of saying what I've. Uh, this is not a drawing, but a drop in the weighted average cost of capital, which for all intents and purposes is the interest rate, reduces the return on your capital. And eventually, um, this, this is the time. This is this is where it becomes marginal. Your <laughs> sub-marginal. Your rate of uh, return on your capital, the farmer is lower than the weighted average cost of his capital. So he has to stop. Otherwise it goes bankrupt. He's got to sell out. And you can see dropping interest rates with all these projects. Projects, plants, which are cash flow engines that you need to bring to present values with the discounting cash flow system. We all get wiped out. Dropping interest rates, we are all getting Poorer. Do I need more proof than that? Ask what happens in, in well, ask what happens everywhere. If you are from the States, can you still maintain that capital hasn't been destroyed? Can you still maintain that in Greece? Is it, I mean, it's probably very difficult for central banks to acknowledge, and for people in general to acknowledge that Hang on, you know, we've created trillions. And they say it's money. So, <coughs> where is this money ending up? Was it in your pockets? It was certainly not in mine. The trillions of fiat credit ends up where? It ends up in that's where you can still make a profit. Why can you still make a profit in bonds? If interest rates are dropping, present values of bonds are rising. This is what the smart venture capitalists or the smart whole, well, capitalists would do. They would take the money, they would, they would buy, first of all, bonds, government bonds at a growing rate knowing full well that the rate will drop meaning that they will get a capital in, a capital profit knowing full well that this capital gain this capital gain they make is the same as blowing the hole in the farmer and the rest of the poor community getting poorer it ends up here on the balance sheet of the speculators and banks. Banks, well, anyone holding government bonds making capital profits. This is not explained in business schools. 
but even in the MBA classes. You'll find that yourself. And you'll find out the hard way. So this explains what happens, and this is the criticism basically of this weird system of irredeemable credit. And this weird system of, of enslaving basically populations in becoming well wage laborers for the government or tax producers tax producing engines for governments who have to pay off of course their debt that they have contracted with the Federal Reserve or with the Reserve Banks. So that the population is in fact a cash flow engine if you want for politicians in the direction of central banks and politicians and they are earning all a good living if you well you won't fight with me on that I suppose and this is how things are explained in a traditional system um, again this is many years ago that I had to read this and, and study this. It's the Keynesian system used with Friedmanite precepts. You know, fiscal stimulus. This is this is typical Keynes. Fiscal stimulus. And with fiscal stimulus, um, generally is meant well. Let's give everyone a tax break. Um, we can. Uh, and let's look at the First World War. You see, this is. This is where Keynes got his moment of glory. After the First World War, massive capital destruction. He advised Roosevelt to confiscate gold. And this is what happens to your pockets. You've got paper money. And deficit spending. What is deficit spending? That is a nice word for spending other people's money. Other people's money, that means your money, your savings right now, and your children's savings in the future. Deficit spending is supposed to prime the pump. You know, let's get things going again. If we do and build this humongous bridge costing billions, well, we provide work. And everybody, when, when I was 19 and 20, I said, mm, yeah, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. 20 years on, I think not. And everybody else in this room probably thinks not. Because you're borrowing that money from future generations. There's a parasitical element, which is not in the hexagonal model, which is the seventh protagonist who hampers the coordination of the inventor and the entrepreneur and the annuitants. Well, they hamper all everybody's work, all six um, um, participants, and they come in with over-regulations, I should say. I've got nothing against house rules. They should be. So I'm not against, I'm not an anarchist, but I am against over-regulation. It was, um, was it you really who said Philip Barton was saying um, something about compliance? compliance. Well, yes. compliance with over-regulation costs money. 
it affects, it affects, well, it adds to your weighted average cost of capital. It's a component. It's not an interest rate, but it's a component that weighs on you. Anyway, this is how, in a traditional um, system, a complex system, that, that fiscal stimulus is supposedly the, um, the solution, uh, because let's, uh, we have got a, one minute. Private sector, uh, there's a problem here. Where we are, weaker economy and deflation. This is the engine of deflation, ladies and gentlemen. Huh? Lower interest rates is, a, is, is <laughs> you could say that's inflation, but at the same time, it's the engine of deflation because it blows holes in balance sheets somewhere, except for the banks because they get capital gains. But people here in are afraid of deflation, and they define deflation differently. But let's say we define this as trouble, because work and job opportunities are gone. The new Austrian school knows where the, how the system that has destroyed these jobs, and that's a deflationary system. Traditional economists think differently and they deny that and they think well we can f we can fix fiscal stimulus and we blow a lot of um, let's blow bubbles let's create money let's just get this thing going we create trillions of money which end up not in, which end up not in here but they end up in the bond market because that's where they can get capital gains so you and I are never going to profit it's not in the trillions are not in my and your pocket Now, to finish, um, this is a picture of uh, an economy. Obviously, the drawer pokes a little fun at, at economists um, in drawing a very complicated system, um, giving all sorts of ad hoc explanations. And it says here on the bottom, machine designed to show the working of the economic system with a very learned professor giving all sorts of explanations. Now, we know um, through this model, we know that that model is just ridiculous. It was meant to be ridiculous, but again, <laughs> this previous model is just as ridiculous because it's the same. The gig, ladies and gentlemen, is really up because and that's the reason why the gig is up. Is that... Say again. Oh, do that again. Oh, yes. <laughs> Alright. The gig is up, ladies and gentlemen, because um, I'm going to use another example. Has anybody seen ever a snake? A snake eating its own tail? Yes? The snake eats his own tail. This is a very good picture of, I've got it somewhere, but um, never mind. Imagine this snake eating its own tail. Under fiat credit systems, the analogy, although it, it, it fails to prove anything, but it's a good analogy to make a point. Keynesians, and especially Friedmanites, would say, well, you know, Friedman was saying to the, was angry at the Federal Reserve because he made them 
fools, you know, he compared them to donkeys. Even a donkey can put out a steady rate of money. You don't need much more intelligence than that. Now, I'll give the, I'll give the Federal Reserve employees a little bit more credit than the rear end of a donkey. But the whole idea is this. If you create money, you create growth. Remember the snake? The snake will grow. But in the same time, it's eating its own tail. It's devaluing. It's deflationary at the same time. So, how on earth is there a way out? Of course, not, not, not with this system. The snake will... It, it is counted on that the growth of the snake is faster. The, the snake will still grow faster than it, at the rate it will devour itself. So it will eat its own tail, but in the meantime, it will grow a little bit and you will never notice the difference. And hopefully the snake will get longer. But of course, everybody, every biologist knows that this is the end of the snake. The snake is dead. Why? Because it's what's, you know, whatever, whatever it's eaten is rotting, it's producing um, bacteries and this, it needs to go fast now because otherwise the bacteries will take over the, the snake's life and, and it will kill the snake. And ladies and gentlemen, the bacteries in our financial system <laughs> have grown. And, you know, you can antidote, you can give an antidote in the form of gold, which would be the, um, um, what would you call medicine? The, what, what do you get for anti, anti-inflammatory um, medicine? Antibiotics? Yeah, you, well... You can get antibiotics, so gold would be an antibiotic. But I'm afraid there is a point where you get just past the point of no return, which is, I'm afraid to say, your topic for this afternoon. Right, thank you. Thanks very much, Peter.